0: we are in this series on the seven churches of revelation one thing that becomes very clear is that there is no perfect church only a perfect savior and each church has its strengths and weaknesses which christ knows fully that invites us to not only look at the strengths and weaknesses or the warnings and encouragement that are given to each church but to us to ask the question what do we need to hear What are the encouragements and warnings that we need to hear? So if you would put up the map here, just as a reminder, and I'll talk a little bit about the history of this area. Um, So you can see that the church we're talking about today, or the city that we're talking about, and the church that is addressed there is Thyatira, up to the north there. So we started with Ephesus, then Smyrna, and then Pergamum, and then the road goes to the interior of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and down to Laodicea. And so those are the churches remaining, and you may may remember that John is in exile on the island of Patmos, the bottom left corner down there. He was removed during the persecution of a Roman emperor, and so this is in the 90s ADs, writing this is second or third generation Christians from the time that Jesus lived, right? And he's writing to the churches that were first converted and have grown up there, and now, now what they're kind of struggling with. Thyatira was founded by Alexander the Great was known for its manufacturing and its artistic guilds think of those as kind of like labor unions right they were for metals and fabrics in fact the purple dye that is often used in fabrics comes from that valley you might remember that in acts chapter 16 one of the converts was named lydia and it was noted that she was a dealer in purple cloth from thyatira Um, another powerful guild was that of the metal workers copper and bronze and shiny metals that would be very Um, beautiful and ornate. um, Coins were inscribed with the image of Apollo, the god whom the people there worshipped. And one of the things that would happen is that these artistic guilds, these unions of these workers, right, they would get together for periodic festivals. And they were expected to attend. And at the party, they would worship Apollo, they would eat food sacrificed to idols, they would participate in the sexual revelry and immorality that went with the party, and so you might imagine that converts to Christianity in this church being in this place would have made their living, some of them, through these guilds. How would you be part of the guild with its pagan worship and sexual immorality intertwined and be a true follower of Jesus? Would it be easy to say something like, yeah, I'm going to be loving my coworkers by celebrating their religious customs? It'd be easy to... To get a little drunk and slip into some sexual immorality. You know, when in Rome or in Thyatira or Vegas, right? I mean, some things change, some things don't. The world today, the world then, so much that is similar and overlaps. So follow along with me as we read from Revelation. I'm going to read two verses from chapter one, um, which is the image that, that John has of Christ, the the presentation that as Christ presents himself to John, and then jump into chapter 2 to the address to Thyatira. So listen closely to the description that's here. The hairs of his head, this is John's vision of Jesus, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Now let's jump ahead into chapter Verse 18 and following. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into a great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not lay on you, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your holy word and that you will help us to see that it is as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. Use it to shape our lives that we might walk in your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the sermon title today is is this, that the church must be expressing faith through love without compromising faithfulness. We're going to look at this in three ways. Kind of what happens in the text is that Jesus issues a commendation to the church for something they're doing well, that that their faith is being expressed through love. He issues a correction for their compromising faithfulness in, in, of some of them compromising faithfulness. And then to the conquerors, he says, you will receive the promise. So those are our three things we're going to look at. First, the commendation for faith expressed through love. We saw this right from the beginning, right, that he says to us in verse 19, that their faith is expressed through love, through service, and patient endurance. And he even noted that it's exceeding what was prior. In other words, they're getting better at it. They're getting better and better at loving people well, at serving, patiently enduring. Paul is encouraging them this way and saying, well done. Or sorry, not Paul is encouraging them. John is encouraging them this way, saying, well done. Similarly to the way I think Paul encouraged the church in Galatia, which is in Central Asia Minor. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 6. We can put this verse on the screen. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's, that's what John, what Jesus was telling John to commend the church in Thyatira for, for faith expressing itself through love and service and patient endurance. I, I'm encouraged by that. I hope you're encouraged by that. Like, I think that's true in our church here at Spring Run. That I, I think we can be encouraged for ex- faith expressing itself through love, through service, through patient endurance. Now, I see how you're doing that, how you're caring for the sick and and for grieving people, how you're taking them out for a fun night, or, or bringing meals to their house, or sitting with them, or praying with them, or going to watch their kids, or even cleaning their house. I see it in the hospitality that you have when you invite people, your neighbors and co-workers, into your home to love them. And you want to do that so that they see that you, as a follower of Jesus, love people well. You want to share your faith with them, whether it's in your house, or inviting them to a small group, or, or to church. I, I'm excited about the three, four, five kids ministry, and Brett being a rocket to launch the ministry with Lauren, right? Like, this is great. That begins soon. That's a whole bunch of people who are enthusiastically saying, our faith needs to be expressed, and it needs to be expressed to third, fourth, and fifth graders. And they need to get it, and they need to know it. Let's love them and serve them well. I mean, We should be encouraged by that. God is doing a thing. He's doing a thing. And that's good. I hope you're encouraged by that. That is something certainly to be encouraged by. It's also a challenge for us to keep doing that. Our faith should express itself through love. Not just to one another here, but to those outside the walls of this church in our community, in our neighborhood. We need to be known for that. This church was good at that, and it was known for that. Jesus goes on from this commendation to issue the correction, and he spends a little bit more time on this correction. And the correction is for compromising their faithfulness. That doesn't mean they're not loving. It means some of the things that they've done, right? And, and he, he pointed this out pretty clearly when he said that he has eyes like fire, and he went back. That was chapter 1, right? Jesus' eyes like fire. Now, think about this for a second. If you live in Thyatira and there's an artistic guild or a labor union that people who are metal workers— what are they doing? They're staring into fire all the time working on metal. They're seeing the impurities and seeing behind that to pull out the brilliance of the metal that they want to see. What Jesus is saying here is, I'm, I'm more than any of your metal workers, and I see the impurity, and it needs to go. I see through it. His feet that are like burnished, like copper, like bronze, blazing fire. He knows what it's like, and he's calling out, the impurity. And the impurity, the heart of the problem is their idolatry and their immorality, their sexual immorality. Those are the evil practices that are mentioned in verse 20, right? We see these evil practices where it says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Those are the two things that he's calling them out on. Now, who is Jezebel? and why is she a prophetess? What's going on here? Prophetess is great. There's places in the New Testament and in the Old Testament where we see prophetesses. That's no problem at all. The problem is that what she is saying, what she is saying is a problem, because her instruction is persuading them to do evil things, and that's a big problem. And Jezebel is referring to somebody in the Old Testament, and I want to just highlight real quickly, it's in 1 Kings 16. She becomes the wife of Ahab. Ahab was a terrible king, okay? Um, if you read Kings, you're not going to find any really good ones. It's really the story of all the bad kings um, in Israel's history. So Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So that's, that's strong credentials to start with, right? Like writing the history about you. You were the worst president ever, okay? He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel daughter of Ethbaal, Baal Baal is the name of a foreign god, so she's a daughter of somebody who's known for the foreign god, and the king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. The king of Israel built a temple and an altar for a foreign god. And Ahab also made an Asherah pole, which were typically used as fertility rites in things, so I'll let your mind go there, and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. And Jezebel was one of the leaders in this. And so what, what Jesus is saying to this church in Thyatira, you were doing, you, some of you are doing what Jezebel had done, and you're in great danger because of that, because of these evil practices. Now, it's probably good for us to ask two questions Uh, fairly briefly. Why is pagan worship so wrong? I mean, you might say, well, that's obvious, right? I mean, I'll just state the obvious, because the Bible says there's one true God. So all the other gods that we want to create or imagine and foster are not real gods. So it's wrong, because a false God is not the real thing, and it's not good. And so it's offensive to God when you're saying, God, you're not enough. I'm going to create something that I think is better than you. God's like, I'm the one who made you. I am the real thing. I am the only one that is good enough. When you try to fashion your own thing, it's insulting to me. Because it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. It's going to disappoint you. And it's also important because whatever you worship will shape you. Your worship will shape your life. And if you worship false gods, it is very dangerous. The second question we should ask is, why is sexual immorality, that is, sex outside of marriage, so wrong? Now, this could be a whole sermon and a whole other series of things. So this will be very brief on this, just to make you think about two things. There's two dominant views today, I think, in the way that our society views sexuality. Um, First is, it's kind of like a physical appetite, like for food right? And we'll hear things like, well, if it makes me happy, why not? You know, consenting adults, it's all good. It's just an appetite. It's an appetite, but it's not the same as food. And even if it is an appetite that's similar to food, like it is, shouldn't we learn from how much we can't even control food, how dangerous that is? Like, just because I desire food doesn't mean that I use food correctly. I mean, I binge eat on food all the time. I mean, our society for sure we're told, is vastly overweight as a society, right? I mean, that's what all the the doctors say and everything. We can't even control our own discipline for food and that appetite, and it harms our bodies. Why then when we say, well, it's just like an appetite, so it's fine. Whatever I want to do with my body, you'll be fine. But with food, it hurts our bodies. Why would this appetite not have the potential to harm you in some way? So sexual desires can be just as disordered as our food desires are and can be damaging to our body and soul if not used right, not used rightly. The second thing that our society will say is that sex is self-expression of my identity. And it'll be said with things like this, but this is who I am. And I need to express myself. And real quickly, I'll just say this, that Sex is not mere self-expression because it's a uniting act between two people. It's not about the self. It's about two becoming one flesh is what the Bible says. If it were only about the self, maybe, but that's not all it's about. There's much more that could be said there, but just suffice it to say that it's a problem. The Bible says sexual immorality is wrong. And you can dive into that and think about it more and more, but he's calling the church out on it, the church in Thyatira. He's calling them out on it. Notice what he's not doing, though. Jesus is not telling John to send either the angel or pastor these words and condemn the whole city for its sexual immorality. Now, that doesn't mean it's right, all their pagan festivals, but he's not saying go stand in the street and declare all this to the society. He's saying fix the problem you got in your own church. You're not even being an example a light to the society because you're not doing it correctly. That, that, that should be a warning to us to think about that. Wow, how do we treat that? That's important. And then he talks about not only this, this evil doing, but he talks about the resulting punishment that comes because of it. And these are some harsh words in verses 22 and 23. Let's put those on the screen. You notice this. It says, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Right? So notice the sickness going, being thrown on the sickbed. That's a play on words for the sexual immorality and the bed and in the sickbed. Um, and death probably refers to the spiritual children not physical children, but those who are being led astray and, and being uh, brought into this apostasy of worshiping other gods. Um, and so it also goes to those who, who join in to her adultery with her, her spiritual adultery in this way. What, what are we to get from this? It's not a small thing. Idolatry and sexual immorality is not a small thing. God's not playing games. Eternal life is at stake, is what he's saying. And he will not tolerate rebellion forever. Remember the history of the Old Testament, of Israel, right? What does Israel do? They follow God. They're like, yeah, you're the best thing ever. You freed us. You're great. We will do whatever you say. We promise. We swear. They go on for about a generation, and they're like, oh, I don't know. I'm kind of tired of God. What if we should just do our own thing. I mean, maybe these other gods aren't so bad after all. Let's invent a new one. Let's do worship the way they do and all their evil practices that go into it. And then they do that for like a generation or two. And God calls them out and says, what are you doing? Where are you going? Why are you walking away from me? We got married. Remember, we had this covenant. We made this deal. And now you're leaving. You're divorcing me. You're walking off. What are you doing? And he calls them back and he calls them back and he calls them back. And sometimes they do come back. They repent and they turn and they come back to God. And sometimes they don't. And when they don't, what does God do? He says, okay, I'll turn you over to your own desires. I'm going to let your enemies conquer you then. I won't protect you anymore. And so a foreign nation might come in and conquer them or maybe there's some famine or disease that he allows to happen. He says, okay, I'll remove all my protection from you. And you can have at what you want to have at. And life doesn't work out well for him. And then there's always a remnant that goes, oh yeah, we got to turn and come back to God. We got to turn and come back to God. He allows those things to happen for people to walk into the natural consequences of their sin, to awaken them, to shake them. Is this really what you want? Is this really what you think is the best thing for you? He's calling them back in doing that. Hebrews ten thirty one. I think we have this verse too, says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands or a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? We cannot just make God our buddy-buddy friend. He is our friend. He's a friend of sinners. He loves us. He condescends. He comes to us. It's what we celebrate at Christmas, Right? but he is still god and we are not so we see this evil doing and we see this resulting punishment and that probably i hope it's horrifying to you i hope you're shocked by it i hope you're like wow i got to really consider my ways and how i live but it's not the end of the story because notice the next thing that he does is he shows us the enduring patience of god in verses 21 and 22 let's put those on the screen notice this you may we may have just read right by this he says I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality behold I will throw under her sick bed and those who commit adultery with her and I'll throw under great tribulation unless they repent of her works here's the enduring patience of God notice that language he gave her time to repent It wasn't like they wandered straight and he's like, bam, gotcha! God is showing, he's patient. He's saying, what are you doing? He's calling back. And she refuses, meaning she knows. Somebody has pled with her, the church, the pastor, maybe some fellow Christians have gone to her and said, hey, to the people in their group that are doing this, "You you shouldn't do this, what are you doing? They've been pled with, they've heard they're like, eh, yeah, well, we don't care. They refuse. So there's time that has gone through this that's happening. God sees it happening through time and he's saying, look, if you don't change this, it will be harmful and dangerous for you. This is important to understand because I think it's so easy for us to see God and his power and who he is and his law and think, he's like this ogre in the sky like Zeus waiting to throw lightning bolts at us. And that's not what he does. He is just And he will execute justice. But he's not just hurling lightning bolts. Some angry random deity in that way. Notice what 2 Peter 3.9 says. I want to show you the mercy of God here. It says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. Instead he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. So Peter is calling out but he's saying look. God is patient because he wants you to come to repentance. And then if we go to Ezekiel 18, uh, Ezekiel, Old Testament prophet, contemporary of Isaiah says um, that God is a God of mercy. He desires people to repent. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And then the... um, Next verse, 30 to 32. There you go. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. While God is just and will execute justice, he is not sitting up there saying, I take pleasure in, and I'm going to get you. He wants people to see that his great mercy and love will turn them and call them back to him. I mean, what God is doing is God desires to show mercy to those who repent. And those who refuse choose no mercy. When you refuse to repent, you are choosing, I don't need any mercy. That's a lot of hubris. It's a lot of danger to walk in that world. Like Kaz had us read in our Confession of Sin this morning, Dane Ortland reminds us in the book Gentle and Lowly that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It's unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous, it means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our, sin do not cause, our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. God delights to show mercy. So while God is commending them for faith expressed through love and correcting them and us for compromising faithfulness, he is calling us back and saying to the conquerors, to those who come back, you receive the promise. He says, I will give the authority over the nations to you, which is a recalling Psalm 2, 8 and 9, in which it says that the... Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. It's a messianic psalm talking about Christ. And what the conqueror gets is saying that you will have authority over the nations like Christ does. It's saying, it's a signal to Satan that Satan cannot overcome the kingdom of Christ. That the gates of hell will not prevail. It's saying that history has a trajectory to it. There's a victor. There's a champion. There's a king. His name is Jesus. And he wins. It also, this idea of this authority to be given to us echoes the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, where he says, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, I'm giving it to you. Go out and make disciples, right? Right? of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. To the conqueror in Revelation, you will have the authority to do what? To take his mission forward. The authority that he said, go and do this. And when you do that, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That's what we are about here in this church, conquerors, going out, gathering people into hospitable worship as they're converted and baptized, growing in authentic community of faith and going into our society to love people and share the gospel, that gather, grow, go. We mean that. And he says to those who conquer in verse 28 that they'll, be the, they'll get the morning star. Who's the morning star? Well, that's Christ himself. Look at one more verse with me. And we're going to wrap up. Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. So now we're going to the very end of the book. This is almost the last verses of the Bible. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of water of life. The pleading with the Bible is that Jesus is the bright morning star. We should come to him. He's the one who sees through our impurities, who yet delights to extend mercy to us. Come to him. Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story called Capital of the World. It's about a Spanish father who wants to reconcile with his son who had run off to Madrid to be a bullfighter and live all that comes with that lifestyle. They'd been separated for some time and his father decided to put an ad in the the local newspaper in Madrid and it simply said this, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana at noon Tuesday. All is forgiven. Paco's a common name in Spain. So a hundred young men showed up looking for a father who was ready to forgive all they had done. You see, the Father had not compromised his faithfulness, but said he would forgive. What a powerful expression of love. Will you be known for such love, like the church in Thyatira? And every one of us have a deep hope that we could be so loved and receive such mercy. That's why so many Pacos came home. Will you leave the idolatry and the immorality and come back to Christ? like the church, hopefully, in Thyatira, like the church today in Midlothian. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be a church that heeds your warnings and that hears your commendation, that we can rejoice in the ways that you are using us and working through us mightily. But Lord, do not allow that to become a source of pride and arrogance. Help us to see our sins, reveal them to us. And as you do, make your mercy shine bright, shine like blazing eyes, like feet that are burnished bronze. Lord, would your your light shine so brightly that we see your mercy and we can't help but want to come to it because it's the greatest thing there is. We ask all this in your name. Amen.